0: Good morning, Northern Maine. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the contents of Maine. Broadcast today on TalkShoe Radio. Just Google it, search for the Northern Maine Landman, and and you'll find it. This is show 256, or approximately more or less. I didn't look it up. But you're uh, hearing this. March eleventh, two thousand sixteen, or any other time that you choose. After this, it'll it's archived forever. Once you say something, you can't call it back. So always tell the truth. Okay. Weather-wise, we're supposed to have another beautiful weekend, and. Uh, the National Weather Service gets all excited when they get to use one of their favorite words. And that word is bombogenesis. This is where hot, moist air collides with cold, frigid air, generates a circular vortex like a hurricane or something of that nature, but it's in the wintertime. And this may happen next Tuesday. They're watching it carefully and rubbing their hands together in anticipation of this event. Up there in Caribou and down there in Gray, Maine, the two places in Maine where they watch this stuff. And it could be that we have another nor'easter. Probably not going to be two or three feet of snow like the last big one when they had Bobo Genesis. They're talking 12 to 18 inches, probably along the coast. It's going to be cold enough it's not going to rain beautiful clear sky t- on friday this past week or this week and it's supposed to be a nice weekend and then gradually uh this, this cold air from the west is going to meet up with this warm moist air coming up from the gulf and off of bermuda and and get together and do their thing oh so it's much too early to forecast how many inches or when exactly it's going to happen. But Tuesday night into Wednesday, or Tuesday afternoon into Wednesday, this event is is going to take place. The biggest hazard, of course, is going to be visibility. This is going to be a real good time to work on your fishing equipment or whatever tasks you may have at home, fixing stuff, getting ready for spring. It's just not going to be a good time to go out. When you travel during these events, you take an unnecessary risk, unless you have to go to the hospital or go to dialysis or whatever it is you just have to do. Uh, I go give blood from time to time, and I try, try to make those appointments. Once in a while I miss, but they told me that last time this was my 116th pint that I've given. Yeah, it doesn't cost you anything. It, it's two hours out of your day, but it's a great benefit to people that really need it. They take the blood and they separate it out. And they, they'll they give packed red blood cells to people that need it, and they'll use your white cells for increase the <clears throat> immune deficiencies that some people may have, and and the plasma is used. It's all, all gets used for good stuff. I'm not up on it. Any great deal. Well, I, as an EMT in the past, you know, all we did was give them normal saline if they had lost a lot of blood or they were dehydrated for whatever reason. <clears throat> all we just start with D5W. That's dextrose... Uh, dextrose point five percent in water and they would uh you know just to get uh, a keep open rate so you get an iv started and somebody's in trouble the earlier you get it started the better off you are because the further down the hill they go the more difficult it is to start an iv some people have ports put in so that uh no matter what they can get an iv started And these people usually have people that are on dialysis or something like that. So, right from bombogenesis to emergency medicine in one swift leap. They're talking about biofuels again. They're talking about using the big buildings that are still there at East Millinocket to start generating biofuels. Biofuels are made from plants. Uh, ethanol is a biofuel. They take corn and they cook it just like the old moonshiners used to do to make corn liquor. Like L-I-K-K-E-R is the way they spelled it up in the Appalachians. My Uncle Martin used to fly the mail down the Appalachians. Airmail. They take off in the afternoon and Fly down the Appalachian, stopping at several airports along the way, dropping off and picking up airmail and continuing on down. And the navigation beacons were not uh, radio beacons. They used to have beacons on mountaintops like lighthouses. And these beacons would rotate and you'd fly from one beacon to the next uh, when it was possible. (laughs) At night and in the rain, they didn't fly. The Appalachian route. He just couldn't do it. They didn't have the instruments. He couldn't find the airports. And they only flew when it was when it was uh good weather so they could see where they were going. But he was flying back in the nineteen thirties. They're talking about biofuels. The Navy did an experiment. The uh the various federal governments do communicate with each other from time to time, and somebody had making some, made some biofuel that was sort of like diesel fuel, a little bit oily. Had, it would burn well, and uh, they'd used it in some trucks. And they thought, gee, this would be a really good thing environmentally to to put it in jet planes and, and fly them. Well, jet planes do better at high altitudes than they do at low altitudes. They burn a lot of fuel at low altitudes. But get them up there around 30,000 feet, six miles up in the air, and uh, they become very efficient because there's less drag. Planes can go faster on less fuel. That's a good thing. People get there sooner, and it costs less to fly at 30,000 feet than it does to fly at 10,000 feet or even 5,000 feet. So up at 12,500, the rules change. So you got a lot of light planes get up there to 12,500 feet and they fly along and they have certain rules. And if you get above that, then you have to enter a different set of rules. I have a commercial pilot's license kind of left over from when I was in the military. It could just very easily get a commercial pilot's license when you're a military pilot because you're fully trained, you're rated and all that stuff. But when I got my commercial pilot's license, I did not have enough recent fixed wing time. So I have a very unusual commercial pilot's license. I have single-engine land, multi-engine land, rotorcraft, which is what they call helicopters, and instrument pilot, rotorcraft only, they don't let me fly instruments with fixed-wing airplanes because I didn't have enough fixed-wing time when I got the license. But they let me fly instruments with helicopters because I had lots of helicopter time and I had in a helicopter instrument rating at the time. The Navy flies in instrument conditions all the time and that's why they wanted a navy squadron in the Mekong Delta because during the rainy season, you know, pilots without instrument ratings were very limited as to what they could do. So that's it. Now the Interior Department or the Department of Environmental Protection or whatever they call it, the Environmental Protection Agency, the federal government, decided that they ought to have the military use this biofuel that they had developed at great expense, at taxpayer expense. It was something they were doing just to just to please the environmentalist industry. So they they got a navy uh, a navy uh, Crusader F-8 Crusader jet. This was a high-speed interceptor jet that operated off of carriers, and they uh, they took this jet and they had to put in some extra filters. So they took some of the guns off it, put in some extra filters to filter this biofuel because the Navy's kind of suspicious that this biofuel might not might not be, uh, you know, a viable <laughs> a viable thing for the Navy put it into a ship and store it in the ship in big tanks and then pump it up on the flight deck, fill up the the jet plane with it and fire up the jet and shoot it off a catapult in hopes that it would function correctly. (laughs) But the Navy took this FH Crusader and put in some extra filters and they tested the filters, made sure that the flow would go fast enough because when they put that thing in afterburner it sucks a lot of fuel when it's an afterburner and this was an interceptor the job of this airplane was to take off from the carrier head out toward approaching enemy aircraft and shoot them down over the ocean to protect the carrier other other birds other planes on the carrier would carry bombs so they could go in and attack the enemy installations and rockets attack other ships you know it's it, the purpose of the military is to kill people and break things. That's not their PR image that they that they uh, cultivate in advertising and civilian media, trying to recruit people, but that's why we have a military. And next weekend, we're going down to Monmouth to tell the story of what happened at Concord and Lexington on April 19, 1775, we also teach marksmanship. So it's a remarkable story as to what happened, and where it happened, and how it happened. I've been there. And I've walked Battle Road. I've still called Battle Road from from Concord to back to Boston, Route Two, and uh, you can walk it most of the way. Stand there where. Isaac Davis and Abner Hosmer, the two colonials who were killed there at Concord Bridge, stand where they stood, look across that bridge, and think back to those times. I went under that bridge in a canoe when I was about 12 years old with my father. And uh, that's where the Concord River and the Assabet River, excuse me, where the Sudbury River and the Assabet River come together to become the Concord River in Concord. That flows north to the Merrimack, and the Merrimack flows down to the sea. They traveled a lot by rivers because it was a lot easier to do than traveling by road. They had to build the roads. They had to deal with mud time then, just as we do now, with dirty roads in Maine. So, biofuels the plan is to take trees, okay, chew them up into chips and take those chips, run them through a grinder, and make them like, almost like sawdust, and cook them. And and then distill them. And process the liquid so that the end result is, is jet fuel or diesel fuel. Diesel fuel and jet fuel is almost the same thing. And when fuel trucks, you know, tractor trailers will fill up in in Delaware or Connecticut where the fuel is cheapest, and they drive up into Maine and get great big fuel tanks. And some of these trucks you see have have uh, four 50-gallon tanks or 70-gallon tanks. I mean, they can go a long long way on, on fuel. They don't buy much fuel in Maine, even though you have to get a fuel sticker for each each. State that you go through, you know, these truckers, unless they're staying in Maine, don't buy fuel in Maine because our fuel is more expensive than New Hampshire, Delaware, Connecticut, and places like that because of taxes. So these guys will fill up down in Delaware, Connecticut, and they head up into Maine. Next thing you know, they're headed up through, you get north of Bangor and the Orono exit, and all of a sudden you're in the woods and there are no truck stops until you get to Holton. And it's a long way. You know, you're riding up through the woods, and these guys that haven't been here before, all of a sudden their truck won't do 65, 70 miles an hour. They're doing 50, and then they're doing 35, and then they're doing 23 miles an hour going up the interstate, and do not understand why they can't go any faster than that. And it's because... Their fuel is about the consistency of STB. I mean, it's thick, and it's not going through the fuel system. The filter plugs up, fills up with this waxy material, which is what happens to diesel fuel when it gets cold enough. Now, people up here understand that you have to add some kerosene to diesel, and it's more expensive in order time because you have to use more refined fuel. And since they took the sulfur out, with this new uh, low sulfur fuel, uh, the fuel doesn't flow as well either. It doesn't have the lubricity or the lubricating qualities of the old diesel. Trucks would last a lot longer years ago because they had better fuel. Now you have to add special stuff to stick back in to replace the stuff they took out. It just adds to the cost. So they filled up this F-8 Crusader with biofuel and he took off and flew around in circles a few times a couple of miles from the airfield and came back in and landed. He said, yeah, seems to be working. Okay, so they took a bunch of measurements and looked down at the tailpipe of this jet and thought about it a whole lot. And he took off again the next day and he took off and a normal mission, you went up to about 35,000 feet. All of a sudden, this thing didn't have the fuel, uh, the power that it was supposed to have. So we turned back to the airfield. This is out of Norfolk, Virginia. And I think they were flying out of Oceana, which is not actually in Norfolk. It's out near the beach. Virginia Beach. Long, long runway. Parallel runways. It's important Navy base. He headed back into Oceana, And uh, the F-8 is a unique airplane. It's a long, skinny airplane. And when they slow down, of course, the nose has to come up. And you can't see where you're going. So they made the wing come up. So they got a hydraulic jack that lifts up the wing so that the fuselage is more flat. And the guy made it back in. (laughs) That particular pilot didn't want to do that anymore. And they scrapped the program because it didn't work when it's down about 20 below zero it worked fine when it was 75, 80 degrees there in Virginia but at 25 below zero it didn't flow so that was the end of that project but they want to do it in East Millinocket they want to make biofuels and of course we have more, we have more knowledge now than they did 40 years ago and maybe they can make this work but Millinocket and East Millinocket have been scammed badly by the environmental industry they, uh, they've they got a, a plan still exists somebody's still trying to promote this idea to make this half-baked charcoal to use as fuel out of wood waste Well, that was probably a good idea when they were blocking wood and running a paper mill there, but there's not a lot of wood waste around Millinocket anymore because there's not a lot of wood around Millinocket. There's no need for it. There are no paper mills. There's not one single paper mill or pulp mill operating on the Penobscot watershed today. That's the first first time in a hundred years this happened because it's over a hundred years since they had the first mills, paper mills, on the Penobscot. Henry David Thoreau came up to Maine to, he wanted to go climb Mount Katahdin. <coughs> Excuse me. No cough button on this machine. They wanted to climb Mount Katahdin and he went up to, took the train Uh part way up, then he took a horse and buggy to Greenville took a boat up Greenville to Northeast Cary and met Joe Addian, his guide Joe Addian was a in Penobscot Indian and he took Henry David Thoreau in a Birch Park canoe down the West Branch into Chassoncook, and across Chesoncook above Giro Island up into Umbazookus You go up to the top of Umbazuscus, and you have what they call the mud pond carry. You carry from Umbazuscus to mud pond, and then down the brook from mud pond into Eagle Lake. And from Eagle Lake, no, Chamberlain, excuse me. From Chamberlain to Eagle, uh, you know, from mud pond down the brook to Chamberlain and then from Chamberlain to Eagle. And they camped at Pillsbury Island on Eagle Lake. And when they did that, Joe Addion says, that's it. He says, I know there are rapids and waterfalls and all kinds of bad stuff that goes all the way to Canada. Because at that time, whoops, I forgot to turn my phone off. One second. Guy would we'll leave a message, gal or whoever. Anyway, I'll get that after the show. Sorry about that. I normally turn my phone off. Okay, so Joe Addy says, "Nope, we are not going down that river. I mean, any further north. So they turned around and went back up into Chamberlain. And from Chamberlain, they went down into uh, into the lake that leads into Webster Brook, Telos Lake. Chamberlain, they went to Telos, and at the outlet of Telos, there was no dam at that time. They went down Webster Brook. This was early in the year, and the water was still high enough. They went down Webster Brook into Grand Lake, Madagamon. I don't have to look this up, or look at a map. I've been to all these places and canoed all these places. Well, they went down into Grand Lake, Madagamon, and the outlet of Grand Lake, Madagamon is the East branch of the Penobscot. Each branch of the Penobscot goes through Roxanne Quimby's cut-over woodlot, which has been designated as a national monument, partially because the went down through there with Joe Adian on his canoe trip. Now Joe had a birch bark canoe, and you've got to be careful with the birch bark canoe. It's not like going taking one of those old town trippers made out of Royal X, which is uh, ABS plastic. And the birch bark canoe was handmade; they didn't last for passed down from generation to generation. A birch bark canoe would last you a, a year, two years, if they're lucky, three years. And to seal up the seams, birch bark canoes would st- stitch together with cedar roots. And they'd dig up cedar roots in a cedar swamp, and, and they would uh, protect that canoe. And they would seal up the canoe. Of course, when you stitch two big pieces of birch bark together, you know it's going to leak. So they would take bear fat. Now, to get bear fat, first you have to catch a bear and remove the fat, which may displease the bear. So you uh, the best, best way to do this is to find an old bear that died of old age. That's the safest way. But the Indians used bear grease, <clears throat> and they would mix the bear grease with spruce gum. Now, most of us who were in Maine when they were three or four or five years old. Have chewed spruce gum. You know, your uncle or your father or your grandfather would pick a piece off a tree where the tree had been damaged by something—a bro- a branch broken branch or whatever—and they'd take a piece of spruce gum and they'd stick it in their mouth. The spruce gum, is dry, is quite brittle, but you put it in your mouth, it warms up to 98 degrees. 98.6, whatever. And it would soften up. And you could kind of press it against the roof of your mouth with your tongue or roll it around in there. And you could enjoy the spruce flavor, which some people enjoy. I enjoy it. I'll pick a piece off, not a great big piece, but I'll, I'll, I'll chew spruce gum. And eventually, of course, it dissolves and you're swallowing the spruce gum. It's okay. It's not bad for you. It's like lots of other products from trees like they have they have maple syrup for example and people boil down birch and make birch syrup most people don't even know that but there is such a thing so you chew the spruce gum and then when it gets nice and soft you you bite it don't do that when you bite it it glues your teeth together and you can't pull your teeth apart again until the whole thing dissolves. <laughs> kind of a trick that grandfathers and uncles play on their nephews and grandsons. Don't don't chew it. Just let it dissolve and roll it around your mouth and enjoy the flavor. Things you learn on Northern Maine Landman show. So, up there in Millinocket, the uh, well first one more thing about Henry David Thoreau is he went down through. First, they get up on the east branch of the Penobscot and they came to a sawmill beside beside the river. It was powered by a water wheel. There's a small dam there, and they step out, carry the canoe around, and get back in the canoe and go further down. On the east branch, get down around the grindstone, is pretty rough. They'd have to carry the canoe for considerable distances before they put it back in again because you can't go pounding down through the rapids like you can with the tripper today. The Old Town Tripper is made out of what they call, first they called it Oltenar, their own brand name, because they had a slightly different formulation in making the canoes. So they called it Oltenar. And if you've got a really old tripper with the Oltenar sticker, Old Town Aficionados, value that because it says Oltanar right on the canoe right by the carrion thwart in the middle so but it's actually Royal X is the trade name and it's ABS well Old Town was making them and then White decided to try to make some some of these canoes because they're very durable you can bang them on the rock and they, they wouldn't crack a rib and sink on you ripped the canvas on the outside of the canoe, which is what they did after the birch bark canoes. They started putting canvas on them so they wouldn't leak. And then uh, Rivers and Gilman, Jim Rivers and Mr. Gilman, got together, and they built a canoe factory down in Hamden. And they started making these Rivers and Gilman canoes. And they, of course, like they, the canoe, they had green canoes and red canoes, which are the two traditional canoe colors. And once in a while you see a blue one, and rarely you see a yellow one. But the two main canoe colors are red and green. That's it. And we were up on the St. John River. Our wife and I, we flew in with uh, Scott Skinner, Scotty's Flying Service. We flew into Baker Lake with Ken and Hilda York years ago. <clears throat> And we went down the the St. John River by canoe, and we had uh, we had a tripper, and Ken and Hilda had a Rivers and Gilman, uh, eighteen footer, and uh, that was a wonderful trip. It's just uh, Ken and I went down the Allegheny first time together, and we went down the St. John first time together, and uh, good old friend. He was a barber in Bucksport. Right there on Main Street, ran the barber shop. lived is in the front room of his house. A lot of outdoorsmen and papermakers went in there. He had a wood stove there in the barber shop, kept it warm in the wintertime. And he was left-handed. Every now, every now and then, he'd do something good. And he'd say, "Not too bad for a left-handed barber." And of course, all the scissors cost more than right-handed scissors. But he kept them sharp, and he was a good barber and a good friend. And. and uh, Good resource to the community. Good church-going man. Ken and Hilda, Ken and Hilda York, Main Street, Bucksport, Maine. So we went going down through on the Saint John, and this guy came up the river with a square, with a canoe with a side motor mount on it, and he had a, he had a, a. Uh, 18 or 20 foot uh, white canoe white was a brand name not a color white canoe was in Old Town and along with the Old Town Canoe Company and they, they were competitors and there were people that preferred the Old Town canoes and there were people that preferred the white canoes. The white canoes were more pointed on the ends wider in the middle but they were more pointed than they, the uh, a lot of guides felt that they paddled easier than the Old Town canoe because the Old Town canoes were wider on the ends and not tapered as much. And uh, When you get a load in there, they're a little harder to paddle than the white. The white was easier to paddle. A lot of guides used the white canoe, and I, a lot of guides still prefer the white, the lines of a white. It's just more pleasing to the eye. The Old Town's got a... <clears throat> Good, proud tradition. So Jim Rivers came down to the Couples Canoe Club in Butchport, Maine. They had a canoe club there. A lot of local people belonged. They probably had 35, 40 members. And every Wednesday night and Friday night, they would get together and they would have a an outing. And they'd, they'd have a, a trip leader who would choose the pond Sometimes you just go out, you know, during the early year, the days were shorter, in May or so. And you go up to a place like Jacob Buck Pond in Bucksport and just paddle around the perimeter of the pond and look at the camps and enjoy being out in the evening and people would enjoy seeing this whole bunch of canoes paddling around the pond. You'd have, uh, sometimes you'd have a campfire and have a hot drink. Other times we'd have just hot cider. Hot cider is is really uh, a pleasant drink. So they'd have coffee or something right there and then they'd all go home. Just a a quick hour, hour and a half paddling in the evening. So they invited Jim Rivers to come down to a meeting and they had the meetings on Saturday nights once a month. They'd plan for the future and see who was going to take the groups out on various nights. You had to be a member for a while before they let you plan trips. They want you to Uh, make things too complicated he wanted it to be easy for everybody but Jim Rivers came down and said that they had this multiple layer plastic that they would buy in flat sheets it was made by some chemical company and then he explained that this was they had seven layers in this thing and they would take this sheet of flat plastic and heat it up in an oven, and mold it around a form, like, uh, and then vacuum it, so they would it would seal right to this form, and then uh, they would hit it with blast of cold air, and it would it would uh, stay in that form, and pieces. Does any, anybody know what ABS is? It's the ABS plastic. And I said, yep, artificially bonded styrofoam. Oh, oh he was upset. It an artificially bonded styrofoam. It's acrylonitrile butadiene styrene. It's a chemical, plastic chemical, and it's a tough plastic chemical. And... Uh, there's all kinds of tough plastic. Uh, plastic. You know, my brother-in-law was in the plastics industry for years. He ran a plastics plant, owned it with a couple of partners. They uh, they made all kinds of intricate plastic stuff. He was kind of a pioneer in the industry. You know, several industry pioneers that I've encountered in this life really good, innovative American engineers and business people. Our country can survive what we've experienced for these past eight years. We can do it. We can make America great again. That should not be a trite expression. We can do this. Americans and Mainers have been innovative and persistent it have to be to live here. I mean, it's easy to live down in Kentucky, in North Carolina, South Carolina. You know, once in a while they get a, a snowfall. You know, it's gone the next day. We have real winters, but the wonderful part of that is we have real summers. So I hope that these people that want to get started up in Millinocket can can. Uh, generate biofuels out of wood i expect these biofuels are going to be used in stationary applications such as home heating you know but there's a problem you know is can they compete with the petroleum industry oil is back down below $50 a barrel it's down around 46 right today Forty-six dollars a barrel for for crude oil. They have West Texas crude or sweet crude, and that's the benchmark. But they've got other fuels, other other uh, bulk fuel right out of the bar- right out of the ground, and crude oil they call it. Other crude oil, if it's for sale, far less than the benchmark at West Texas crude some of this some of this uh, crude oil is sells for 26 28 dollars a barrel because you don't get the high value fuels out of it it's a lower value product so you got fuel that you're not going to get high octane gasoline you're not going to get jet fuel uh, a little bit of it is diesel some of it is lubricating oil Remember, my my mother used to have a, a little metal tin of sewing machine oil. And it was a fine oil. My grandmother, before that, used whale oil for sewing machine oil. Whale oil. Oil from whales. And I thought to myself, when those old-time sailors headed out of out of New Bedford, Massachusetts, to go out into the ocean in the Pacific Ocean and the South Atlantic down along Cape Horn going around South America I've been around Cape Horn and it's wild down there I mean it's real wild And these guys would go out and they would hunt for whales and they'd catch up with a pod of whales which is just cruising along and they'd dive down deep and they the whales feed on fish and they feed on uh on squid, various other edible creatures down there and they're down there for quite a while and then they got to come up for air. So they come up for air and these guys in the whale whaling ships get into these big dories and they row out to where they thought the whales were going to come up. When the whales come up, they don't just blast out one blast of air and inhale and dive again, they go along for quite a while. They paddle, go along the surface, and they'll blast air out, used up air with carbon dioxide, like just like we do. And then they dive down and swim along the ways and come up, and they blast out some more air take a deep breath. And after they've taken a whole bunch of deep breaths, they go down, and their fins go up out of the water and they dive down deep. And go down here and feed on these squid and various other small fish when the whale's coming up, they try to get there with a with a rowboat a dory and uh, and spear the whale with a harpoon. The harpoon is attached to a rope the rope is in a in a big long in a great big tub like a half a barrel, so and they the sailors would they don't want to get kinked, and they don't want to get caught in it, because when the whale goes down, if you get your ankle caught in this rope, you're going down for a long time. So uh, they would spear the whale, and then they'd wrap this rope around the bow of of this boat, and they'd go what they call a Nantucket sleigh ride. They go whale would go tearing along, trying to get away from them, and they'd go surfing. I mean, these boats would go ripping right across the surface of the water, trying to keep it right side up, keep it from capsizing. Eventually the whale would get tired and come to the surface and they'd lance the whale. And uh, the whale would die. That's how they caught whales. You go out and get the the book Moby Dick. It tells you a lot about it. It's a famous white whale that supposedly really existed. And uh, it's amazing, the stories. Well, I thought to myself... How, you know, how can these people boil down the blubber from whales to get whale oil and bottle it up and bring it home? I mean, how, they must have quite a factory on that ship to bottle up the whale oil, bring it home, and sell it to people that you know, to lubricate their sewing machines and clocks and all that stuff, fine mechanisms. Whale oil was really pure, good oil. How would they do that? Never knew. And none of the books that I had read about whaling explained how this was done. Well, then I went to the Antarctic flying helicopters off a Coast Guard icebreaker. In the course of this this trip of exploration and scientific knowledge acquisition and visiting... Various other nations that had stations down in the Antarctic, with diplomats, people from the State Department, we had occasion to sail into what they call Deception Island. Deception Island is an active volcano in the Antarctic, and we sailed in there. It's it's uh it's like an atoll in the Pacific. Atolls are built up in a circular coral reefs where the, where the ocean is shallow. And you can sail into some of these atolls and you're surrounded by a coral reef which is above the waterline. And then, uh, but Deception Island is a volcano. Volcanoes have, have craters in the middle. In some prior time, a long time ago, Deception Island blew up and blew one side of the island right off. There's a hole in the a hole in the side of it on the west side of Deception Island. It blew off and the ocean flowed in. Well, there are no depth charts for volcanos. Just don't exist. So we sailed in there slowly with the US Coast Guard cutter Eastwind, W-A-G-B-279. which just happened to be 279 feet long. And we sailed in there, helicopters sitting on the fantail, bunch of us that weren't doing anything else, you kind know, of standing on the long rails. We went in there, and we anchored. And we went ashore. We walked around at Deception Island. And there on the shore were great big tanks and great big boats wooden boats sitting there and these boats were built like long barrels pointed on each end with great big posts on on the front on the bow and the stern actually the bow and the stern were exactly alike on these things and they would tow them behind the ship they would fill these boats right to full with whale oil and have a rope on one end tied to the ship and a rope on the other end tied to another one of these boats and they'd have a string of these boats. I don't know how many, three, four, six. I just don't know. But that's how it was done. And they get into a storm with the sailboat, the whaling ship, and if they broke some of those loose, they'd have to go find them because they were highly valuable and get them all strung back together again. It was, and then they would sail up. They'd, fly, they'd, sail into, uh, they'd sail into New Bedford or Nantucket, the two big centers where the whale boats operated out of. New Bedford is is up at the head of Narragansett Bay, which is in Rhode Island, actually. So they'd come in up Narragansett Bay, up to New Bedford, Mass., and, and unload the whale oil, and they would sell whale oil the market I don't know what type of containers but my mother had my grandmother had a little tiny oil can with whale oil in it I don't know what ever happened to it I wish I had it biofuels oil the uh, every one of these schemes cooked up by the environmental industry such as Cylindra out in California is highly suspect. Now Cylindra went bankrupt. It was a huge scheme to provide grants to the to the environmental industry. And they would in turn fund efforts such as buying the East branch of the Penobscot land from Roxanne Quimby. It's ultimately it's taxpayer dollars is where the money comes from for national monuments and national parks and all these schemes. The Statue of Liberty should be a national monument. Faneuil Hall in Boston, where the colonials gathered, and they actually had one of the one of the Congresses before we were a nation, the colonies would meet in a Congress. It wasn't like the U.S. Congress. There was no Constitution. It was just like a big strategy session and committee meeting. So, Faneuil Hall should be a national monument. Liberty Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where the Liberty Bell hangs, should be a national monument. There's a number of places in our nation worthy of being national monuments to celebrate our heritage. Roxanne Quimby's cut-over Woodlot should not be a national monument. The Statue of Liberty should be a national monument, but not Roxanne Quimby's cut-over Woodlot. It's just like the other 7 million acres of woods in the state of Maine. Not better, not worse. There's a nice view of Mount Katahdin, but the other side of Mount Katahdin is pretty, too. I have a photograph of Mount Katahdin that I took right after sunset from Chisuncook Lake. We were on a canoe trip, and the full moon is rising over Mount Katahdin. That's something that not very many people get to see. because To see it, you have to be on the west side of Chisuncook Lake at a place called Sandy Point. And and you're going to be there at the right time of the year and the full moon rises over Mount Katahdin. If it's a cloudy night, you don't get to see it. It's a rare picture that I took. I enjoy having it. That side of Mount Katahdin is much better than the east side with the east branches. The west branch of the Penobscot has been declared to be a recreational corridor so that you can't do much along the West Branch anymore. The government prohibits it. Halfway between what they call the roll dam and Chasuncook Lake was Ansel Smith's halfway house on the Penobscot River. Ansel Smith ran a bed and breakfast for loggers, Fishermen, hunters, guides, anybody that was going down the West Branch—you don't go up the West Branch; you go down the West Branch. And he halfway down, and there's an island right just below there too. And he on the right-hand side going down the east side, because the West Branch of the Penobscot flows in a northerly direction from Northeast Cary to just on Cook Lake, and it you know, it meanders back and forth, but generally it, it flows northerly. I have stood on the front porch of Ansel Smith's halfway house. It is totally gone today. I had no GPS. I could not record the actual spot. A little further down the river, there was a a uh, a, a camp at the head of an island It was on the shore, but it was at the head of an island. And along the island, they had benches, like church pews. And trout fishermen would sit on these pews in rotation, and the guy would fish. You know, you can't have a dozen fly fishermen right in a row casting like you do spin fishing. The guy has to have some room behind him to back cast and roll cast and, and fly fish properly. As soon as he was done, he'd catch a fish. Or he'd need to change his fly. He'd step back, get up, and sit on the bench. Somebody else would go up, and they had a rotation. There was no written rules. It was just a, it was a procedure that had been developed by fishermen. It was a you know impressive to watch for a young fella. These guys didn't necessarily know each other, but they quickly adapted and, and understood the courtesies extended to each other among sportsmen. It was it was a, an amazing thing. Now we have bass tournaments where they all take off from one spot at the same time with 150, 200-horsepower bass boats, go screaming up the lake about three miles stop and fish. <laughs> but they want to get to that spot first, so they've got to have these boats with 250 horsepower that just, come up, just about stands on the outboard motor as they go up the lake. Does it for them. More power to them. Helps the economy. Not my way to fish. I like fishing trout streams and lakes. You don't see as many fishermen on the lakes anymore because due to our economic catastrophe that occurred over the last eight years, there aren't that many people with the disposable income to go fishing. I mean, you got to load up the boat, bring some food. I mean, you're going to eat at home anyway, so same food. But you gotta burn gas, you gotta get there, you gotta have a license, register the boat and uh and go fishing for the weekend. Instead of mowing the lawn, trimming the posies or whatever it is you do at home. And there are fewer and fewer people doing it. We have fewer and fewer young people going out outdoors, much less hunting and fishing. It's a skill set that we need to preserve. And the environmental industry is intruding everywhere. And the environmental industry got together with the National Forest Service and they went out and they had a big meeting in western Wyoming where there's a lot of, a lot of sheep ranching. There's still a market for wool in this world and we have sheep ranchers and they shear the sheep. Of course, Australia produces a lot more wool than we do, but, but the... Uh, we still have wool in our country. And the uh, Sierra Club and the National Forest Service got together and they had a big meeting out there and they invited all the ranches around and the Sierra Club said, you know, you people have been shooting the coyotes and you've been trapping the coyotes and this, you know, we we've got a plan here that's much more humane than shooting, shooting them and trapping them. What we're going to do is we're going to put out a lot of live traps and we're going to trap these coyotes. And when we trap them, we're going to castrate the male coyotes and turn them loose again so they can't reproduce. This is a much more humane, you know, than trapping them and shooting them. And this old rancher been out on the plains in western Wyoming his whole life, tipped his head back, his hat back, and stood up. And he said, Sonny, you don't understand our problem. The coyotes aren't raping our sheep, they're eating them. <laughs> the meeting never became organized again after that. They just they just fell apart. That was <laughs> that was the end of his his plan to to neuter coyotes. It wasn't going to work because the coyote still has to eat. These people don't think. And they have one goal. They want the same goal. The environmental industry and the eco-fascists have the same goal as the Islamo-fascists. When you get right down to it, this is what they want for us. They want to kill our economy and they want to bring us back to a hunter gatherer system that they had when Muhammad was alive in the year 700, more or less, 1400 years ago. That's what they want for us. Eco fascists and the islamo fascists have the same goals. We should understand that. I went to. <clears throat> Several meetings back in the early 1990s when Angus King was governor. And he had a whole bunch of, of people involved in, in trying to reduce gasoline consumption. <clears throat> well, if you're going to reduce the use of energy, you have to reduce the quality of life and you reduce the ability to produce products. It's a huge imposition on society. But if they can make society more expensive, they can make it less productive. Make it less productive, fewer people have jobs. This is their stated goal. When George Herbert Walker Bush came back from Rio de Janeiro after the Rio conference in 1992, he asked the three networks for time to produce a major speech for the people of our nation. And he did. They gave him a half an hour. And he came on the air and he used the term New World Order 35 times in a half an hour. He came back from the Rio Conference wanting to have a New World Order. Not only for our nation and the state of Maine. He wanted a New World Order for the whole flipping world. I avoid using profanity, but I do enjoy using colorful language that is not profanity. The whole flipping world, new world order. It would crush liberty. It would crush freedom. It would crush ingenuity, productivity, and prosperity. This is what the equal fascists and the Islamo fascists want. And they say that. Maurice Strong was the the chairman of that conference in Rio de Janeiro. And out of it came their agenda for the 21st century. Agenda 21 is not the 21st agenda in a long line of agendas. Agenda 21 is their agenda for the 21st century. They're making good progress at it. And part of that progress, from their point of view, is the fact that there is not one single pulp or paper mill running on the Penobscot River today for the first time in over a century. Now, now they want to make biofuels. When Angus King's first wind company came to our town, they wanted to put up some windmills, but they wanted a TIFF, TIF is not a spat between two spouses. A TIF is tax instrument financing, tax increment financing. Rather, excuse me, they wanted to come in, invest in our town, and pay lower taxes than anybody else in our town. Homeowners, business owners, they want to pay less taxes, lower tax rate, and in return, they were going to give us some money over the next 30 years grants to do stuff we would not otherwise have done. So we, It'll help you improve the snowmobile trails and, and fix up some of the roads and plant gardens or whatever it is that selectmen dream up to use this money for that would not, they would not otherwise have had. What the selectmen and the citizens may not realize is that they are paying lower taxes. We're already subsidizing these people. Anybody with a tiff is being subsidized by everybody else. And that's it. And it is 10 o'clock, straight up. Watch out for Bombogenesis in the Gulf of Maine, Tuesday. For those of you that are hear hearing this in the year 2027, 20, we probably had Bombogenesis back then. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, The Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today on TalkShoe Radio. Just Google it, search for the Northern Maine Landman, and uh, get your pencil. The code number on there is 123144, and you'll find it. So, be safe, enjoy this glorious weekend in Maine. Go snowmobiling. The end of the season is coming. And be safe. God bless.